Give us an idea okay. of how many how many arrows you had in your quiver. <coughs> I I probably had about thirty five. <laughs> uh, I I used to go up there with a hundred arrows for the week and oh, come home with none. Come That's home unreal. with none. Absolutely none. Hey guys, welcome to the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Cuyuga Broadheads. As temps warm up around Australia and hunting tends to slow down for most of us, it's a great time to test new gear, fine-tune our setups for our next hunt, whether it be six weeks' time or six months for the fallow and red deer rut in 2019. Now would be a great time to take advantage of the 10% discount at CuyugaBroadheads.com. Choose your polar cuts in either 125, 150 or 175 grains and simply use the HCDU10 code on checkout and change the outcome of your next hunt. Hey guys, welcome to the Hunting Camp Donut Podcast. I've got a guest today that I've looked up to since I was a little attacker, running around the 3D range, Dara Bolger. How are you, buddy? Yeah, good. Thanks, Craig. How are you? Good, mate. Good. Thanks for uh, stepping out of your comfort zone, mate, and joining me on the on the podcast today. I know it's not the normal thing for you. You like writing, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks very much for inviting me, Craig. No, it'll be interesting and fun, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely, mate. We'll make the most of it, and uh, hopefully, we yeah. can spread a few secrets around to to everyone from uh, all the knowledge <laughs> you've got. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, mate, fill us um, in. What's the What's the background of Daryl Bolger? Um, I like to start it off by getting you introduce yourself and uh, just a little bit, you know, who you are outside the the hunting world. You know what you do for a day job and and, um, you know, just a bit of your background. Okay, probably before we, we get right into it, um, listeners will notice my voice is a little bit strange. Um, I had some surgery a few years ago and the anaesthetist damaged my vocal cords and that's why my voice breaks in and out a bit these days. That'll be fine. And, um, yeah, so I hope everyone handles that. But um, I live on the Gold Coast. And um, my day job, and has been since I left school, is shaping surfboards. Um, I'm the head shaper for JS Industries on the Gold Coast, and we're the biggest in-house company in the world at the moment. And we have we have um, team riders like Joel Parkinson and Julian Wilson and a big handful of other top world-class pros, and it keeps me very, very busy. <laughs> I bet. And, um, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's um, it's a good job in a sense because in between the professional competitions, it gives me time to go hunting. Yeah, right. And um, every year when I go back to work after Christmas, I give my boss the dates I'm going to be away for that next 12 months. Yep, yep. So he knows when I'm going to be there. Oh, that's awesome. And, yeah, and, of course, I've got priority times like when deer are running and that. Yep, yep. So, yeah, that's uh, what I do there. So, mate, you've have you always been Queensland or, like, is that is that been home forever up in the Goldie or? Yeah, I'm born and bred here. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so I know the area very well and I've seen lots and lots of changes. I bet. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, uh, unfortunately, the Gold Coast, to me, is uh, going downhill a little bit. Mm. Um, it's going ahead in development, 
but there's a lot of petty crime in, in the Gold Coast these days. Yeah. It's a great shame because it tarnishes the place. Yeah, yeah. It is a beautiful place, but uh, we're hearing about more and more petty crime and a lot of it's youth crime. Yeah. And it's a great shame, eh? Do you find that uh, that kind of thing's sort of like if you think about yourself growing back up, you know, back in the day sort of thing, you know, is a lot of it as a boredom or what do you think it sort of comes back to? I think the sort of people that are moving to the goals, and I do say some, I suppose, um, moving up here from southern cities, um, the parents, I think, are responsible uh, because they're just, they're, they're coming here to enjoy the lifestyle we have here on the Gold Coast. Yeah. And because it is laid back, um, they're just letting their children sort of basically do what they want to do. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And, and they're unsupervised. Um, this week we've just had three 15-year-old teenagers destroy 20 cars, stab oh, a guy in the neck, all this, you know, this sort of stuff. Yeah. It, it gets you that way at night time. You don't want to leave your home. Yeah, understandable. And, uh, yeah, it's not very nice, eh? So talking about – the... sorry, go ahead, mate. Yeah. The, the culture on the Gold Coast has always been, in the old days, was a, a very mellow surfing culture. Yep. Whereas now it's becoming a very hardened, um, nearly like a western suburbs culture down in some of the southern major cities. Yeah, gotcha. And, yeah, it's it's not very nice, eh? So taking it back to sort of when you grow up and, you know, you, you, you talk about, yeah, we're jumping Australian deep here, but... You know, talking about growing up and that, I mean, how, how did you sort of fall on hunting? You know, was it always bow hunting to start with or, you know, what, what was your growing up like? Well, my father used to take us into the bush when we were kids and uh, Dad had uh, big, big ferneries and that and we used to go into the rainforest and Dad would get staghorns and elk horns and stuff and, yeah, and uh, contribute those into his uh, greenhouses and that. But my father wasn't really a hunter. Yeah. Um, I always had an interest in bows and arrows. Um, so I always had some sort of a, a stick with a piece of string on it as such. Yeah. And um, as I got older, I sort of progressed a little bit and had a fiberglass recurve and just kept going. And yeah. Um, I was introduced to the first uh, archery club here on the Gold Coast and uh, it was called Tanglewood Bow Hunters and that was at Mwoolomba. And um, I, at that stage, I had a 50-pound true, uh, true aim recurve and, of course, wooden arrows. And um, that was sort of the starting point there. Yeah. How old, and, were, you, how old were you about that? I think I was probably about 17 or 18. Okay, yep. But but I always, I had bows and arrows before that, but yep. I wasn't involved in a club. Yeah, got you. Um, but as soon as I seen a compound, I wanted one of these things with wheels on it. <laughs> and um, my first compound was called a black bear too. Yep. 
and it was a pretty strange-looking compound. And um, I think I had that for about a year and a half, two years. And then I progressed to a Martin Warthog. And I was watching guys all the time going away in the club hunting goats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, a couple of guys in the club offered to take me hunting. Yeah, nice. And um, it was after goats out of Charleville. And... Um, I shot my first billy goat then, and I was over the moon. Yeah. And um, that basically kicked it off for me. Uh, I never looked back after that weekend, and all I wanted to do was go bow hunting. <laughs> and um, I used to, back in those days, go to the ABA safaris. Yeah, yeah. And I met some of the Northern Territory boys. And um, I ended up up there one year and still with the Martin Warthog. And um, a fella by the name of Chris Ogle, he took me out for my first buffalo hunt. And, of course, I was very, very nervous. Had the goat skin quiver on me back with about 30 wooden arrows on, in the back of it and uh, Davies broadheads. And, um, yeah, I shot my first buffalo and um, we went into this mangrove area and uh, there was the arse end of a buffalo sticking out of the mangroves <laughs> and Chris said to me, we'll go and shoot it. And I was, yeah, shaking in the guts, of course. <laughs> and I, I, I literally, and I was pretty fit in those days because I was surfing every day of the week. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I still remember... I ran up to that buffalo, I stuck an arrow in its ribs, and I turned around and run the other way. <laughs> <laughs> and this buffalo just took off into the mangroves and just basically smashed all the mangroves all the way through. And um, <laughs> anyway, we, we left it for about an hour, and we went and we found this buffalo, and he was leaning against a tree, and he was pretty sick. And anyway, um, yeah, I ended up finishing him off. He was only a young bull. And, um, yeah, so I was over the moon. I come back to the Gold Coast with this set of buffalo horns. I think they only went about 78 points or something. And um, I was over the moon, eh? And uh, <laughs> it just made me want to go hunting more and more and more. And... Um, I seemed to get along with the Northern Territory boys really well. Yeah. I, I met a guy named Bruce Werribone, who was an Aboriginal boana, and Bruce was one of the head wildlife commission officers up there. That's handy, mate. That's and, handy, but no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was. And anyway, we used to go hunting on a property up there called Marakai Plains. And Marakai Plains is, is the coastal plains. And what we used to do was camp on the hard country and it would sort of drop down like a tier about eight feet onto the floodplain. And we used to hunt on 250 quad bikes. And there'd be like eight of us and four quad bikes, two on each bike. And we'd just go down onto the floodplains and we'd split up because there were all groves of malalukas everywhere. 
and you'd pull up to a grove of Malaluka, get out and comb through it. And there were buffalo channels cutting across the plains. And the quad bikes, because they were only light quad bikes, they used to float on their tyre pressure. <laughs> so, so we used to get one either side and walk them across these channels, not even thinking of crocodiles, <laughs> and um, rev them up and get them up the other side and keep going. Bloody hell. And that was unbelievable those years because – what I've seen back in those days, young bow hunters today will see that. Oh, yeah. I was uh, just thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> we used to see late in the afternoon, like Bruce knew that country like the back of his hand. And he used to be able to come back in from there when it was just about dark. Yep. And we'd all join up again and and follow each other back to camp. And... um. But late in the afternoon, you used to see maybe two or three hundred pigs just in one mob. And and the buffalo were just everywhere. And I remember the last year I went up there, um, it was just when they started the buffalo eradication program. Yeah, right. What year, roughly, what year was that? About 1980. Yeah, right. And we were finding mounds of buffalo carcasses. Yeah. And it was just a great shame. Eh? Oh, it really was. It was devastating to see it, you know. That sort of reminds me, I hear the stories of my old man and, um, you know, when they're out in the Macquarie Marshes, I mean, you may have well, you know, sort of had something over that as well. But, um, you know, talking to, you know, the blokes like Dave Whiting and those kind of guys hitting the marshes and, you know, when they when they built the big dam out there and it sort of dried up the marshes and that kind of stuff, like, the, the whole New South Wales hunting kind of changed. Actually, I think there's something out in the, the new Bowhunt Down Under magazine, I think, um, that, that sort of talks about those stories. And, and that buffalo sort of, you know, the, the eradication of them up there, that sort of yeah. reminds me of that. Yeah, no, it was a great shame. Um, the last, I haven't been up there again since that. That last trip up there, I shot a 97-point bull on that trip, um, which is still my best bull today. Um, but I never went back up after that last trip. Right. Yeah. Um, is that, some, is that Ava, something you regret? Well, I do, but um, Bruce Werribone, who was my sort of friend and contact up there, he sort of moved around a bit then. Yep. And it wasn't really convenient. Yeah, and sure. um, <clears throat> unfortunately, Bruce Werribone has passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the guy was a great bow hunter. Eh? A, a lot of young blokes these days wouldn't even know who I was talking about. But he had, like, when you comb through those Malaluka, uh, those groves of Malalukas, <clears throat> There would be boar after boar after boar lying against trees asleep. <laughs> and you'd shoot. And, and getting back to the equipment we had, which yep. was bare bow, wooden shafts, um, I used to stick my five-inch feathers on with contact cement. <laughs> um, and actually one of the funniest stories was we went out one morning and we were all off on the quad bikes. We hit the plane. We all split up. And... I was on the back hanging on to two bows. I had my goatskin quiver on full of arrows for the day. Anyway, we get, I was with a guy named Peter Thompson and um, 
we got to where we were going to start walking through this Melaleuca and um, Peter said, where's your arrows? And I reached over my shoulder. There was no arrows there. <laughs> and we'd been going on the quad bike for about an hour. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, and, and anyway, what had happened was the arrows from bouncing around, because these flight planes look dead flat, but unfortunately they're just full of buffalo footprints, and so they're not really that flat, and you're bouncing along. The arrows bouncing up and down, and my quiver cut a hole in the bottom of my quiver. Oh, no. <laughs> and all the arrows had been falling out as we were driving along. Oh, shit. So luckily the grass was long and the quad bike left a really good track through it. Yep, yep. So we, we, we went back along our tracks and was picking up my arrows <laughs> and we found probably 98% of them. But, yeah, it was funny. And then we were trying to tie up the bottom of my quiver so they wouldn't fall out again. Give us an idea but, of how many, yeah. how many arrows you had in the quiver. <clears throat> I, I probably had about 34... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I used to go up there with a hundred arrows for the week and oh, come home with shit. none. Come That's home unreal. with none, absolutely none. That's awesome. And that was very. Though though were the days I would hate to think. Alan Davies used to give us our broadheads. Yep. And I would hate to think how many Davies broadheads are in the mud up in those plains. <laughs> oh, uh, mate. yeah. That's... Because those local guys used to go out there every weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And not even put a dent in the numbers. Oh, no way. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible way to see that. And as I say, young guys today will never see that. Yeah. Um, it was truly incredible way. So, I and, mean, go, going back to that, and I don't want to jump straight to today's hunting because I know, you know yeah. you've experienced some awesome stuff. But going back to that, I mean, how, how quickly did that shorten – this, oh, that's terrible. Like, how, how quick did your learning curve? I mean, you obviously learnt a lot in a short amount of time. Well, you, you learnt where to hit those boards to, yeah. to pull them up because if you didn't hit them in the right place, they, were just, they just steamrolled away. Yeah. 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 And, like, you know, I religiously have hunted Cape York now for about 26, 27 years, uh -huh. and I think I've only missed one year. Oh, shit. And, like, you really know, you've got to know where to hit those boards. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they can, they, you can hit them and they don't even get on their feet sometimes, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Um, you really know where to upset them, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, back in those days, because there were so many and we were flinging arrows all over the place, <laughs> um, you, it was like a Wild West show, eh? Hey? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you'd sneak up on a buffalo and a wallow, and it mightn't sound good. Like a lot of young guys will go, oh, that's not very ethical. But they can't comprehend what we were seeing and doing. Yeah. Uh, you'd shoot a buffalo, and he'd run out on the plane, and some of these planes you could see for kilometres, and you'd see that buffalo get smaller and smaller and smaller and keep running and keep running and keep running. And you said, stand there going, no, nah, he's not going to fall over. And you'd walk back in the Malaluka, walk another 50 yards and shoot another one. Wow. That's crazy. There was, there was so much game in that country. Yep. It was just unbelievable. Eh? I mean, we go back to those, you know, yeah, sure, someone sort of raised their eyebrow. But, you know, going back to those days, the issues of 
ethics and all those kind of stuff that we that we have present weren't known. Yes. You know, they weren't known. Like you didn't know, you yeah. know, what was the right thing to do, what wasn't. The gear wasn't like we had now. Like we kind of have no excuse in a certain way now. Um, That's exactly. So true. you know, it was a whole another ball game. And and yeah, you guys were out there just. This is what we, this is hunting. Like you knew nothing different. Mate, the, gear, the gear we had, you know, like. I never even I never even sealed my Port Oregon cedar shafts. <laughs> now, it didn't matter. You had that many of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was hunting on Toomba one year with a guy named Trevor Goff from Charters Towers, and that was back in the days when there were no chittle deer on Toomba. Well, and we went out in this dry country, and there's all this clumps of rubber vine. And Trevor, we could hear these pigs in this rubber mine. And Trevor went round one side and he said, I'll go round this side and I'll throw sticks in there. You get round the other side and I'll run out your side. <laughs> anyway, and I was still pretty green on all this. Eh? And um, I'm on my knees and got an arrow in my bow and hearing all these pigs grunting and carrying on in there. And this little boar run out. <clears throat> and from about 15 yards, I shot this little boar. And that, when that arrow, when that Port Oregon cedar arrow came out of my bow, it did three loops and went up into the treetops. <laughs> it was that outer spine and that soft. Oh, it was crazy. And Trevor come running around and said, how'd you go? How'd you go? And I said, oh, scratch my head going, the arrow went up in the treetops, <laughs> did these two roll, roll over loops coming out of the bow and went up into the tree. <laughs> I mean, yeah, our gear, look, our gear was pretty, pretty ordinary, eh? But you, and, made, you uh, made it work, though. You guys killed some stuff. Oh, yeah, but I mean, the amount, like today, um, you use far less gear. Um, you, you really manufacture your shots. And like today, I don't shoot at something unless I know I'm going to put it down. Yeah, eh? yeah, whole nother, whole uh, nother ball game today. Yeah, yeah, like, um, yeah, we're much more precision bow hunters these days, most of us anyway. Yeah. Um, with the gear we've got, hey, it's so good, it's so accurate. Um, there's no excuses now, you know. I'd like to, um, I'd like to find one after my last effort, but I, I can't. So, feeling like stubborn. But go on. No, before we go through the before we go through the years too far, um, how did you go blending? Because I know surfing these days can be a bit of a mixed bunch. But how did you go blending hunting and surfing? Like, what was surfing back like then? Like, obviously, it was a pretty cruisy sort of lifestyle as well. How how did you go blending those two lifestyles? People, I had people thinking I was an absolute murderer. Yeah. Um, because it was all back in those days, it was all groovy and a little bit hippie throwing in and all the rest of it. Yeah. And if you said you went out killing animals, it was like a no-no. And, um, yeah, a lot of people used – and I used to be a bit of a loner. Like, I had lots of friends, mm -hmm. lots of friends in the water. Um, I think I used to surf pretty good myself. Um, and you had that bit of respect because you're a surfboard shaper as well. Yeah, sure. But, but um, yeah, people used to scratch their heads. It's like if I go to, I, I tend to, I haven't got many properties to hunt on, but the properties I hunt on, I've hunted for years. Yeah, got you. 
And um, rather than have a dozen properties that you go to occasionally, I rather have a couple of properties that I know like the back of my hand, know mm-hmm. the game on those properties, and they then they become very productive. Yeah, got um, But, yeah, back in... Back in those days, people thought you were strange, the same as when I did go to, say, a new property or something where people didn't really know me, and you'd say, and this, this a lot of guys will laugh at this, I'm a vegetarian. There you go. You know, I'm a bow hunter, and I'll be up to my arms inside a deer, gutting it and all the rest of it, and yeah. I'm a vegetarian. And I've been a vegetarian since I was three years old. With that, so that's a, lot a of very interesting. Really mix. scratch their heads. Yeah, well, I mean, it is. It just goes to show to me, you know, you, you can do whatever the hell you want. You know what I mean? Like, there's no right or wrong. And I mean, that that's a great example. You know, it, being vegetarian doesn't mean that you know you don't want to hurt animals or anything like that. Like, it's it's just that's just what you eat. You know, you, you hunt for the, you know, for whatever for whatever reason you you do it. Um, like- yeah. I, I was interested to see what it was like because I know, you know, looking at a lot of the stuff which, you know, has put social media puts it in front of our eyes or front of keyboards in a lot of people. But, you know, there's yeah. such a division and, and it's interesting you say that it was back there too. I mean, how did you handle it? You know, moving, you know, f- back then, you know, did you handle it the same way you handle it now or, you know? Yeah, look, look, I'm, um, I've got lots of friends, but I'm a bit of a loner. Um, I do a lot of my hunting by myself because I'm a really um, dedicated deer hunter Mm -hmm. and I find that you have much more success hunting deer by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's just, it's one of those animals that's high strung and and, um, everything's got to be right to get that shot opportunity. Occasionally you'll get the stupid animal, but... Generally, they don't slip up too much. Mm-hmm. And with another person behind you or in front of you, it just adds to that um, that pressure, that disturbance, um, that, that chance, extra chance an animal's going to see movement. Um, I far prefer that one-on-one situation. Gotcha. And I, I do enjoy hunting by myself, but... Now I'm getting older, and I've had a couple of recent health scares. Um, I'm sort of, I've got a friend here on the coast that I do a little bit of hunting with. Um, but, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. Um, I mean, I, I had a personal EPIR, but they changed the frequencies in them some years ago. Mm-hmm. And I am thinking of getting another one now. Yeah, sure. Uh, because if I'm up in the mountains somewhere hunting and um, something happens to me, boy, I want I want them to at least find me body, eh? <laughs> <laughs> doing what you're doing, loving, but yeah, at least find me. <laughs> yeah, at least find me. Yeah. Going back, but, um, going back yeah. to you know, obviously, yeah, you know, yeah, you sort of you covered your ways. You obviously you handled it in the way you did. Um, you know, you. When you sort of transition, you didn't go back up to the buffalo and that. But when did when did things really did they really start kicking up for you? Um, obviously, you would have eventually got into target. But you know, when looking back, when did things really start getting serious into? You know, this is the sport that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Oh, look, um, 
I, I was bo- I was bow hunting crazy back in those days. I used to have all my gear ready to go in the garage, and I don't know how many weekends uh, a month I would just finish work, and I'd throw everything in the back of the ute, and I'd go out to Charleville and shoot goats, goats all weekend. Yeah. Um, it was just something I kept doing and doing and doing, and then. I got an opportunity to go and hunt red deer. Yep. And I met a guy whose father owned a property up at Linville in the Brisbane Valley. What, what, roughly and what year is this? I was 21 then. Yep. And I'm 663 now. Right. So you're going back sort of 40 odd years ago. What's, before you jump into that too much, what's the deer herd? Compared to now, what's the deer herd like? Is there just one or two red deer around in the Brisbane Valley or are they going strong? Look, I've hunted right through the, the, the red deer areas from, from west to east over the years that I've been hunting deer. Yep. Um, what you've got is you've got the Merry Valley, mm-hmm. which is closest to the coast. Okay. You've got, it gets all the coastal showers. Right. So it's much, much greener country, and you've got a lot of legumes and stuff like this that that the deer really like. So on that on that eastern side of the range, the numbers are pretty good. Yeah, and that was the same back then, forty years ago. Like, yeah. was that was the yeah. main concentration? I haven't noticed too much difference. Okay. Yeah. Um, you get in areas where uh, the property I've been hunting for many years now. You'd sort of stand stand there at night time and you'd hear maybe 10 stags roaring from camp. Oh. And that's not just going over the next ridge and going into the next valley to hear the next lot, you know. That's a terrible problem. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have stags come down on the flats nearly around camp at night time roaring. And, um, but then as you start to go west west in the red deer range it turns into like iron bark open timber country gotcha yeah and a bit a bit stonier and it's it's different Mm -hmm. it's just a bit different and the deer the concentration of deer i don't think is as good um the deer basically run from kilcoy in the east across to nearly toowoomba in the west okay and, and, and just below the Toowoomba range yep. to about Kilkeven in the north. Mm-hmm. And and there have been some releases over the last 10 years a little bit north of Kilkeven. Okay. And, uh, but those releases, which is unfortunate because they're very good bloodline deer, they will never get to integrate with the wild red deer that are south of them. Uh-huh. Because they just won't wander that far. Yeah, right, gotcha. No, yep. so when someone establishes their own little deer herd as such, it it's never going to benefit those genetics. It's never going to benefit the red deer that have been in the bush for 130 years. Because they're not going to get to them. They're not going to get to them. Mm. And usually what happens when someone gets a smart idea, oh, we'll let some good bloodline go on our property if they get to breed one year, it's very lucky because as soon as they grow ahead, they get shot. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because those good genetic deer, you can have a you can have a three year old that's two fifty, two sixty in its head size. Yeah. You know, which is like with leaps and bounds with, over all, the, a with all the potential in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. people just shoot them because they, they see it as a good head. Yeah. Which you, you can understand why, because if you haven't shot a red deer before and a 260 head walks yeah. in front of you, you're going to shoot it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it I was a, yeah. I was a foundation member of the Ridge Group up here in Queensland. Uh-huh. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, and what we used to do there was we would capture bush hinds and put them over Clark McGee. Clark McGee was a deer farmer in those yeah. days. Yep. He had very good bloodline deer. We used to push, uh, put those bush hinds over his good stud stags mm-hmm. and then we'd take them back out to where we'd trapped them and let them go again. Yeah, right. And we tried to improve the bloodline that way a bit. Yep. But, um, yeah, lots, well, a hell of a lot's changed with the Ridge Group these days. It's sure. it's turned into a money-making business and that yeah. side of it's just forgot about. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything to do with them anymore. I mean, but, I, um, I changed yeah. I changed you. I changed you. I got you on a on a tangent there, but take us back to that first red deer hunt, you know, and and what started, <clears throat> I guess your, or your red deer career, I guess you could say. I I I used to I used to look at those red deer up at Linville then back in those days, and I used to see the arse end of a deer running over the next ridge, <laughs> and I used to think. How the hell do you get close to these things to shoot them with a bow and arrow? <laughs> that was that was my honest opinion. I thought I'm, and there was back in those days, there was very few people hunted deer because in those days, those all those deer now that are below Tamworth, mm-hmm. they weren't there. Yeah, yep, they're not that old. You know. They're not that old. All those deer through those ranges below Tamworth, they're not that old, those no. deer. No. And um, I, there weren't, I think, back in those days, uh, a bow hunter, an old bow hunter up this way, Alan Podlick, he had the Australian record red deer. And it was a double four that measured like 180 points. Crazy. That was the Australian record because mm. no one hunted deer. Yeah. Was and in it? those days, you had, you had to pl- apply for a permit and a tag. You had this little aluminium tag that if you shot a deer, you had to put it around the antler and you pushed it into itself and it locked on the antler. Mm-hmm. And that was a legal requirement. Um, whereas now, of course, they're a declared pest in, a, in Queensland yeah. and not a game animal. Yeah. <coughs> um, but, yeah, a lot, lot um, – the deer thing just got me in. A, it 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 was something I think I took it on as a challenge uh-huh. because they were just so damn hard to get close to. And when I think of today's efforts, I've had stags standing that close to me. I've seen the water droplets on their noses, <laughs> That's the cool. moisture droplets on their nose, and gone, hey. And they've nearly fell over backwards, running away, flipping away, running. Um, and it just, it's from being out in the bush, watching them, listening to them. Yeah. Learning, learning a lot about them, learning the country, the, the 
way the wind suck up and down those spaces in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that sort of thing, eh? Hey? Um, you can trick a stag pretty easily, eh? Hey? Um, a, a generally a red stag that's got a mob of does won't leave those does. He, you, he'll roar at you and carry on and maybe come a bit towards you, but he'll turn around and go back to his does. Yeah. Because generally he's got a couple of chaser stags around him. Yeah. And if he moves too far from those does, they'll run in and cut out a doe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not going to leave them to run after another stag because I truly believe the stags aren't looking for a fight. They're not deliberately looking for a fight. They'll have one, but I don't think they're deliberately looking for a fight. Hmm. And I think young guys these days roar at stags too much. Yeah, right. Uh, because in the rut, they're looking for girls. They're not looking for a fight. Lovers not fighters. And I think, yeah, and I think if you can get close enough, you're far better off mind calling them yeah. than trying to roar at them. If you get a big old stag, sometimes a big old stag will only have two to host. And he'll be held up on a gully, in a gully somewhere for the whole rut as long as he's not pushed out of it. Yep. And if you roar at him too hard, he'll out. just shut up and he'll just move away. Yeah, yeah. You know, and a lot of those deer, you only see them once, you'd never see them again. And um, no, I'm fascinated with deer. I love deer. It's um, deer have been a big part of my life, eh? So going back at the start, you know, and, and obviously we don't, we never have enough time to tell all the deer stories. But you know, what what's yeah. one in the early days? What's a story that sits out to you? Maybe something that you learnt. You know, it was a very steep learning curve or something like that. But what's a story that sticks in your mind to this day? You know, from your early days of you know chasing red deer. Um. Oh wow, there's so many of them. Um, it's been so many close experiences. Eh? Um, Could be a success one. Could be a say first year, first red stag. Oh, I can't even remember it. <laughs> um, um, I, yeah, it was a. The first red stag I shot was a a double five. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was <laughs> because um, this is going back a long way. Um, it was a double five, and I shot him maybe forty five yards downhill. I had a twenty two nineteen aluminium arrow with a Davies Aztec on it. Yep. And I shot him, and he run down the slope a bit further and just stood there, and I just sat down, and he ended up falling over a few minutes later. And I made more, and this is very, very steep country, I made my way down to him. And when I finished looking at him and trying to take a photo, because I was big into photos and get a photo of him and that, I wanted to caping out. And I took the shoulder skin off and that by the time I did that, it was dark. It was pitch black. Yep. And I had a fair way to walk back to my camp. And anyway, there was a full moon. And the moon was coming up about 
eight o'clock at night. So rather in the some of that long grass and steep gullies, you could trying to bulldoze your way through it, you could walk into a sharp stick into your leg and all sorts of things. So what I did was I stayed with the deer. I waited till the moon actually come up to yeah. where it cleared the ridge top and it was a full moon, so it was very, very bright and I actually used the moonlight to get out of there <laughs> and I knew once I got to the top of the ridge there was a fence. Yeah. Once I got to that fence, all I had to do was keep following the fence to a corner and then follow the other fence down to camp. Yeah, got you. But, yeah, it was like midnight or longer when I got back to camp and I absolutely stunk. <laughs> I had this I had this head on my shoulders and there's blood dripping down the centre of my back and all the rest of it. And I was so tired. And anyway, I went to bed, no wash, no nothing. And anyway, the property owner came up the next morning real early. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> anyway, I, I sort of heard his truck coming up the hill. And I got up and got out of the truck and he seen that. The head hanging in the tree. Oh, you got one, he goes. Good on you, he goes. And he goes, Poor, you stink. <laughs> I was really on the nose. Like this was a full rotten stag and he stunk. And I had his cape <laughs> wrapped around my shoulders and that walking out of there that night before. And anyway, he put he didn't put me in the truck, he put me in the back of the truck in the park. <laughs> And he took me down to his place and he, he let me have a shower. Eh? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was on the nose. Eh? But oh. no, that was that was very exciting. Eh? Very, I was I was as proud as punch of that deer. Um, yeah, no, that was very exciting weekend. Eh? Talk us about yeah. a deer. Tell us, talk us about a deer before we move on to another species. But you know, and and as I say, you, you know, you've you've chased red deer for so long now, and you know, you've really got to know the species inside and out. And I think we probably need to talk maybe a little bit closer to the rut in regards to yeah. tactics. But um, tell us about one that really sits in your mind about maybe a stag you watch. Because I've read a few of your stories about something, you know, a couple of stags that you've watched over seasons. And then, you know, whether you actually got to harvest it or, or maybe, you know, he, he died of old age or, or he might be still running out there. But tell us about one that sort of sits in, in your mind. Yeah, well, there was, um, I was hunting an area called Emu Creek at Blackbutt, and there was um, an old stag. This is a very steep canyon sort of country, and with a creek running in the base of it. And um, I'd seen this stag the year before, and he was uh, quite a significant double five and quite heavy in that. And, um, a couple of times there, I thought I tricked him and he'd be coming into me and, and, and he'd, he'd just spring me. Oh, he'd just know I was there. Eh? And um, and anyway, the following year, because a lot of these stags, they will, they're not unlike fallow deer. Fallow will come back in the same scraping areas year yeah. after year as long as they're not shot. Uh, yeah. Red stags, they'll come back into the same gullies and stuff year after year too if they're not pushed out and um anyway this stag was there the following year but he'd gone backwards mm -hmm. and by that i mean like he, 
uh, red deer, like most deer, they'll get to a peak in their age where yeah. their antlers then start going Go back. Backwards. Yeah. And this this fella had lost his brow tines. Okay. And um, he still had his bay tines and he still had his fork. So basically he was a fork fork. Yeah. But he got thicker. Yeah, right. And he actually, on one side where his brow tine was, he just had a rolled off knob. Yeah. And... Um, um. I've got a fellow like that. Yeah. And anyway, I ended up calling him into about 15 yards hmm. and shot him very well. And um, he he was a very interesting deer, right? Um, very interesting head. I'm looking at him now. I've got him mounted roaring with yep. his head turned, and he looks awesome. He's very thick and very heavy stag. Um yeah, just just a good example of an oldie. Um, what sets him apart from your others? Like what in the, in the experience, age, the age? Yep. I think I think that area has a fair bit of hunting pressure, and mm-hmm. I'm talking rifle hunters. Yep. And that old stack to me lived in that canyon because not many people would have got in there to getting out. Mm-hmm. And and. A lot of rifle hunters don't hunt that hard. Mm. They don't have to hunt that hard. If they can see it, they can nearly shoot it. Yeah. And I think to sort of to get down into that country um, where I shot him, <clears throat> you had to be pretty serious, eh? Yeah. <clears throat> and um, no, I was very proud of him, very, very proud. The only other deer that I can think of again was a malform. Yep. <clears throat> and what happens with deer is if someone, say for argument's sake, a rifle shooter or even a bow hunter shoots a stag in the left-hand side of that deer and doesn't kill it, the following year... When that deer regrows its antlers, mm. its antler on the right side, the opposite side to the wound, will go back. It's crazy, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's hard to get your head around that. Yeah. And this stag, I heard him roaring, and I sat on my ass in some bracken fern, which was up to my shoulders, and I hind-called this thing and hind-called, and he walked up to me roaring, and I shot him straight under the chin in the sets, straight under the chin in the center of the neck from about ten yards. Yeah. And he was roaring at me, walking up to me, <laughs> and that was that was pretty unbelievable. That. Oh, that's incredible. Um, he's got a very unusual head, that deer. Eh? Yeah. I've still got it here. Um, yeah, very unusual, but totally malformed on that one side. Um. What is it about red deer? What is it? On I mean, they're the majestic and and the rest of it. But what what do they do for you? Is it the challenge? You know, is it their smartness? Is it just the the purely the way they move through the mountains? Like, what is it for you? Look, it's it's what I've got. It's what I've um, sort of always had access to. And the um, I I think if you've got the luxury of having a game animal like that that you can spend time in the bush with. Um, it's not all about the hunt, all yeah. about the kill. Yeah. It's learning about the animal. And as 
as much as I've shot a lot of red deer, um, I've I've learnt ten times more about the deer than what I've actually shot. Yeah, I'm hearing you. Um, you know, I keep my bottom jaws; they're all aged. Um, all these things. It's not just about killing the deer, and mm. because I'm a vegetarian, um, I usually, if I can, and some of the red deer country is is like crazy steep country Mm -hmm. uh, but i usually try and take something off the animal meat wise yeah because i've got loads of friends that love venison yeah sure and where i do have access like and it's easy access i'll take as much meat as i possibly can yeah yeah because i don't like to just cut the head off and walk away from it Mm. if i've got the opportunity to take some meat i will take some meat yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but no, look, red deer have been a, a huge part of my life. I've hunted fallow deer a lot too in the early days. Yeah. Uh, I only really started hunting fallow deer again after about a 10-year break in the last two years. Yeah, yeah. And was that purely uh, an, was that a property access thing or like what was the main reason for that? Well, a couple of friends of mine actually bought a property yep. and invited me down to their property. Mm-hmm. And that's basically, yeah, how it started again. Yeah, nice. Uh, um, with the fallow deer, there's a lot of different strains of fallow deer in our country. Oh, yeah. Um, you get your stand to fallow, and honestly, the stags that little, you can just about throw them over your shoulder and walk away with them. <laughs> yeah, another um, kind of fish, aren't they? Yeah, and then you get those fallow stags down down south there below Tamworth, and they're much bigger bodied. They grow yeah. much thicker beams, um, and they're good solid animals, and they grow great antlers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, there is a lot of different strains of um, of fallow deer in our country, as well as there's quite a few different strains of red deer in our country due to the, those those newer releases down there. Yeah. They're much bigger. Um, like our average red stag, his skull from the tip of his nose to his coronets will be about 13 inches. Okay. And um, those stags that they shoot down there around Stone, Murundi, those areas, they're about three inches longer in the skull. Mm-hmm. And there's also wider across the coronets. There they go. Uh, much bigger deer. Yeah. And that's just coming from that, that pure bloodline. Yep. They've been velvet stags. They're, they're, they're all about growing a lot of antler because that's what the velvet industry was about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so they're much bigger deer. Interesting. Um, our Queensland bush deer are, are quite light on to some of those stags down that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I've got a question for you. Yep. A 30-point 30 30 boar on the cape. Or red stag. Which one are you going to shoot? I don't know. A thirty-point boar in the cave. I've shot quite a few boars. Yeah, I know. That's what's leading me. Um, into that. <laughs> um. Look, I still think a red stag. Um, you know, my 90, 98 percent of the boars I shoot are sound asleep. Yeah. 
So not other than getting the wind right and um, tiptoeing in and your volley sand shoes, there's not a whole lot to it. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's when he jumps for, up and wants to run or run. For some, for some. Well, talk us about that. Jump us in. I mean, you've you've hunted. I mean, I know you've hunted the Cape for for years and years and years, and you've seen so yeah. much happen. But you know, to, talk us a little bit about you know hunting the Cape. Obviously, it's some, you know it's sort of the time of the year that a lot of guys are up north. You know. Yeah, you know, I'm going up, Yeah, I'm going up on the 19th of October. I generally I generally leave it as late as I can because I, at the moment I'm hunting on the eastern side of the Cape yeah. and generally your early storms are over the weeper side of the Cape yeah. and a so, lot of times, yep. And it generally comes from the west to the east, doesn't it, a lot of the storm comes? Yes, it does, yes. And um, you'll see lightning in that western sky yeah. at night but it won't come across and then you'll actually see it starting to really build up some afternoons and you think oh we're going to get wet and then the next morning it's all clear again uh-huh. um i've in all the years going to the cape i've only ever had to come home once because i was rained out yeah right i if you get a storm the next day is no good for hunting yeah yeah, because it's, of course, it's terrible. Yeah, as soon as there's puddles of water everywhere, the boars just spread out. Yeah, uh, and I only shoot boars; I don't shoot sows and whatever. Yeah. Um, so if you get a storm, the next day is no good. But if it, you don't get a backup storm that next day, by the following day, it's all dried up again. Oh, oh. And but if you get backup storms, you could if you got three heavy storms in a row, your mouse will pack up and go home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you go, uh, geographically, uh, talk us through the difference between sort of the, if any, um, the eastern side of the Cape to, to the western. I mean, I've only done, my hunting's only been central and western, but does it does it change at all, like the, the country, the landscape, you know, um, um, types of plant it, soils? Yeah, it does a little bit. Um, up through the centre of the Cape, it's called the Laura Basin, mm-hmm. and... Um, you will get a little bit more black soil and that and that sort of country. Yeah. Um, swamps are more black, black sort of mud and all that sort of stuff. Um, you and the and the fish even change. Like you'll get Saratoga up through the centre of the Cape, whereas where I hunt on the eastern side of the Cape, everything that jumps on your lure is a barramundi. Yeah, gotcha. Um, the I I've hunted on the western side, and again it's fairly flat yeah um the coastal areas of course are sandy i i think probably the the west coast and the east coast very similar but okay. up through the center up That's through where that it changes. Yep. it's a little bit different yeah um around palmer river and those areas it's a little bit stonier and a bit hillier mm-hmm. um <coughs> excuse me um I did a survey with the Australian Quarantine Department one year where I went with a government vet and we went into so-called conservation-sensitive areas and I actually shot pigs with my bow and the government vet did autopsies on them. Yeah, right. Looked for exotic diseases and stuff. Yeah. And he had, like, blood-spinning machines, everything in the back of this vehicle. It was set up unbelievable. And, of course, it was great for me because I got to – I wasn't shooting sows, of course. I was shooting boars. And I accumulated quite a few sets of tusks in that government (laughs) trip. 
Um, <laughs> Benefit but, to both. Yeah, but we, we did that all over the Cape. And we went into some Aboriginal communities and we'd go to the council chambers, tell them, oh, the doctor would tell them what he's doing and everything else. And yeah. that basically point the best places for pigs <laughs> because that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And um, that was that was um, quite exciting doing all that. And um, I'm probably one of the very few hunters that have legally hunted in Lakefield. Yeah. And National Park, and with the head ranger right beside me. Yeah. And um, I shot a I shot a boar there one afternoon, and he went to me. That went straight through it. <laughs> I, said, I said they're very sharp, and he was very impressed. Eh? Yeah, that was a good thing. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, for him to see that. Yeah, of course. Uh, but they did. They did say there would be no recreational hunting in national parks. Yeah. Uh, that was purely a survey. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, that was very interesting. Um, but yeah, look, I couldn't tell you how many pigs I've shot up there over the years. Um, I've got, I know I've got a basket down, uh, like a cane basket downstairs, chock a block with tusks. But um, and they're only the trophy class ones and record class ones. So what keeps um, but, what keeps the drive? After so many years of hitting the Cape, and, and look, it's not hard to love it, but, you know, after so many years and doing it by yourself and, and, and shooting as many balls in that year if you had, like, what, what's the driver? It's unique country. Um, I like that feeling of remoteness. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something you don't get too many places. Um, that that feeling if you're standing there and you you just feel like, well, I'm the only person here. Yeah. Like that that feeling of, like I can walk down on the beach up there and you look up the beach to the north and to the south and there's nothing as far as the eye can see. That's cool. And you just feel like you're all alone. Yep. And it, it's, it's a strange sort of a feeling, but I like it. Does that come from a bit of time in the ocean? No, not really. No, no. I get that fishing. Uh, no, not really. It's um, just yeah, just that remoteness and yeah. um, the people up there where I go, they're very, very good friends. I've I've nursed all their babies and um, they never had children when I first went there. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, the oldest boy is twenty-one now. Yeah. And. Right I've nursed them all as little rugrats, and um, yeah, they're very, very good friends of mine. And um, I really look driving down that road when I see those gates into the house paddock. I feel like I'm I'm there again, like yeah. it's nearly like your second home. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's very, very good to see them. I they come down to the coast here now and then to take the kids to the theme parks and stuff like that. Yeah, nice. or not so now because the kids are growing yeah, no, up a bit yeah um you know we'd always get together or he'd throw the car keys at me and go i'm not driving down here you can do all the time <laughs> <laughs> another kettle of fish down there yeah, yeah, I yeah. And, uh, he, he didn't like putting shoes on he, he works non-stop all day long cattle yards everything bare feet yeah and um but yeah, look, they're a breed of their own up there, and oh. and really, yeah, you've got to respect those people. It's a hard life, tough it's a remote life. life, tough. And yeah, and the the 
yeah, it's a tough life. Yeah, it's they got to take the good with the bad. They get a big cyclone. I know they got a cyclone there several years back, and they were standing on the roof of their house, getting plucked off the roof of their house by a helicopter. There was four foot of water through the house, and there was crocodiles everywhere. And um, yes. yeah, the things they've got to put up with in some of that country. Hey, eh? they always seem so happy um, though. Hi, hey? they're always so happy. Yeah, yeah. I don't no, know what they, it is. Like, I mean, they just. We're all gonna laugh on them. They're always freaking joking or something. Like every time I've yeah. been up there, it's—I oh, mean—it's like you step in there. I've met, you know, you never met them, and and they're India. They're digging something in your ribs straight up, and I don't know. There's yeah. just something about them. Yeah, no, they they shrug things off pretty easy. Yeah, and um, no, they're very special people. I um, very very special people. Um, but yeah, no, look, I, I love it up there, and um. I respect, I respect um, the country. I respect the fact that it doesn't take much water to hide a big crocodile. Oh, yeah. And um, we pulled up, at, I, I have a camping spot there that I camp at every year and there's a beautiful big shady trees and there's a little tiny elbow of water and this elbow is probably about 40 yards long and about 15 yards across. Yeah. And it's always nice and clear. And um, we pulled, we drove across and we come up onto the top of the creek bank and we're going to drive down the creek bank and in under the shade of the trees. And there was a 12-foot salty walking across the sand in front of us in the water. Now, if we hadn't have seen that, <laughs> you know, we would have been in there. set up camp 10 foot from the water's edge. Yeah. And that croc was in there. Yeah. Because if they don't want to show themselves, you don't know they're there. Yeah. And um, I was glad I seen him, so we actually went and camped that year a little bit further away from the water. I bet. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but, yeah, it, it, it doesn't take much to hide a crocodile, though. I bet. And, and you've got to respect them. They only know one thing, and that's survive and eat. And yep. um, all the things, yeah. Definitely. I uh, don't care what they chew on, I don't think. So looking back at all your career now, looking back, you know, obviously the different red deer hunts, hunting up north, you know, for so many years, what's something that you know now that you would have taken back to those early days? I think if I had the equipment that I've got now, I would have taken some magnificent trophies back in those days. Yeah. Um... Yeah, because it, yeah, like our equipment these days is so good, it's so precise. If you know what you're doing and you set it up right and you shoot it right, it is so precise, so humane. Um, yeah, like yeah, shots that I trembled in my boots with me wooden arrows and bare bow and that, and not willing to take the shot on, it yeah. would have been yeah, just done deal you know yeah. if it was these days and a lot of times you don't ever get that opportunity again yeah in our sport yeah um as i say if you're a firearm shooter if you see it you can nearly shoot it mm. and but with bow hunting you've got to get within that distance and um and then, i really and then still pull the shot off and and still be able to pull the shot off of course mm. um I, I shoot a lot of 3d Yes. And 
I've been a very early member of 3D AAA in Australia. What number are yeah. you? What's your membership number? 323. I bet you I'm 258. Are you? Yeah. Yep, I go. <laughs> I've been there so since I... it started. All right. Yeah, because me and Jamie Bradshaw used to go around. We were both yep. sponsored by PSE back in those days. And, remember, um, remember watching you two go... shoot it out? Yeah, we used to go and shoot, shoot it. And I used to shoot Hunter Class and Jamie shoot MBO. Yeah. And we used to go around, yeah, shooting it up all the time. And, um, that was great. That was re- and I still really enjoy it today, even though I shoot MSR today. Yeah. Uh, I still really enjoy it and I'm still competitive. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very good for your hunting skills because it, it teaches you to judge distance and you need to be able to judge distance. Yeah. You, Always haven't got time to get your range finder out and use your range finder. Mm. Um, the number of, I carry a range finder. The number of times I've actually used that range finder on an animal is you could probably count it on one hand. Yeah, you know uh, you don't very often get that opportunity. As you're putting the arrow in your bow, you, you, you're basically clicking off the distance and you yeah. draw them back and shooting. Yeah. You yeah. don't have that added luxury of that extra time. Mm. Uh, um, I think I think but, yeah. distance judging, it, it it gels the shoot the shooter together. Oh, this yeah, that's not the best way to put it, but yeah, it kind of it just kind of finishes it off. Like people can shoot, but then they, if they can't shoot distance. There's a, somewhere along the lines that's going to bring them unstuck. If that does that make sense? I guess the world, yeah. the the well-rounded shooter, hunter, whatever you want to say, is generally distance judging is involved in that. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Eh? No, for sure. Um, I remember watching you. I think it was Casino. Yep. Um, I think Jamie ended up winning it, and I'm pretty sure that he, someone was touching the center ring. I think it was like a fifty-something yard shot. It was over over max, and I know that because I remember someone said something. But <laughs> yep. um, he punched, he pushed the arrow out of the center. I've never seen a man that could shoot like him, and like when he's on, he's Look, he, he, unbelievable. Jamie, Jamie, Jamie still shoots very, very well. Yeah. Um, at casino at the state of origin this year, um, me and Jamie shot against each other in the top ten. Yep. And Jamie still shoots really good, eh? Oh, just rock uh, solid. Yeah, and like Jamie's had a, a, a bit of a heart turn as well, and, and the guy is still shooting good. Yeah. Um, he's jovial. He, he loves what he's doing. A um, little bit outspoken sometimes, but no, look, he's still a brilliant shooter, eh? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I, used yeah to no. wa- I used to watch him and you know, yourself included and a few others. And another name that comes to mind, you know, that I was very like fortunate enough to spend some time with before his, you know, unfortunate passing was, you know, was Steve Reeks. Um, yes, yes. Like, Steve was a very good friend of mine too. He was just, I remember, you know, it gives me shivers as I, I goosebumps as I, as I talk about it, but I still remember the day, we, it was the night before we were heading to Glenbourne Dam shoot and, um, you know, we've got that news. But, you know, watching that guy shoot, you know, that's, that was the sort of the beginning of my career, you know, shooting career, if you want to call it that, back, you know, when I was a young young fella and just watching you guys shoot and, and the form and, you know, you're looking at a target that you can barely see and, you know, just yep. smack in the centre of a 12 ring. They didn't even have 12 yep. rings back in them days, but yep. it's, um, you know, that's what set the platform for me and 
I still haven't got there yet, but maybe one day. <laughs> no, look, I I probably well these days I sh- I do shoot every weekend at some stage over the weekend. Yep. Um, but yeah, I definitely will shoot some arrows every weekend. Um, but yeah, it's it's just just one of those things. Like it's your sport, your love. Um, yeah, it's not hard you know, work. It's something you know, and you can't. <clears throat> Put it in the cupboard at once every three months or six months. Pull it out and go. I'm going hunting now. Yeah, you've got to stay tuned in with everything, go. Eh? Yeah, and um, mentally and your equipment. And uh, I'm forever fiddling around in my man cave in the garage. And um, now I've sort of got my own arrow brand and stuff. I'm in there all the time doing stuff, and it's like. My my interest in the sport has actually even got greater, you know, right. and um, oh, it's very good. That's awesome. I mean, I was going to ask you too, you know, from from all, especially up north, and I know you're at a you know a similar basket to a lot of the guys that are well known for setups, you know, and and, and coaching and those kind of things like Brad Smith and those guys. But yep. you know, what what's your, your sort of take on on setup? You know, you talked about balls better to sleep and. Um, you know, Brad's tried so hard to, to hit home with with good arrow weight and those kind of things. You know, yep. what, what's yep. your sort of your take on it? What's your setup? Um, you know, what what's what what have you learned over those kind of things over the years? Well, look, funny enough, you mentioned Brad. I took Brad in his first trip to Cape York. Did you really? Yes. Jeez. And um, when I took I took Brad, I took Mick Watts, yep. I took Jamie Bradshaw up there. Yep. Okay. I can honestly say I've got so much respect for Brad Smith. Um, I can honestly say that I probably still have never seen anyone that's got better shot placement than him. He's a ridiculous. On an animal. Yeah. He is crazy. He was shooting boars that were not even getting on their feet. Yeah. And he was using heavy arrows. He had flight mate inserts. Yeah, no flight um, mate. Really, really, the whole arrow was just going to hit you with the broom handle, you know. It was heavy. And he used to smash those boys' front shoulders. Yep. Now, there's, you can't do that with light equipment. That's right. But he was just smashing their shoulders. And with our front shoulders, they weren't going nowhere. Mm. And um, I was super impressed. Um with, with his shot placement, but my own, I always try, of course, double lung them or heart shoot them. Yeah. Um, I got in trouble a few years ago because, because, and you know yourself with a boy, you can be laying asleep in a hole in the bank and you ain't got much margin of er- uh, error for a shot. Yeah. You've got to think where the broadhead is going to end up, not where it necessarily is going to enter. Yep. And if guys can get their head around that, um, and yeah, look, I clipped a few through the the centre of the back, and you know what that does? It doesn't even, they don't go nowhere. Mm. Um, and I made the mistake and wrote a story about it many years ago, and I got slapped in the face quite a bit over it. But um, you know, uh, until you get in a situation with some of these pigs, the way that they're laying, and and you've got to, as I say, you've got to think 
not where that arrow is going to enter the pig, but mm. where it's going to come out of the pig. Yeah. You might have to shoot that pig in the in a spot where nobody would ever shoot a pig, but mm -hmm. that broadhead's going to end up in the engine room. Yeah. You know, and a lot of guys don't realise that they'll shoot at the engine room and they'll go past it. Mm. Very important for angled shots. It's everything. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but I don't shoot heavy gear myself. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm shooting a new Matthews Triax at the moment that I'm going to yep. use up tape this year. It's on 68 pound and um, my arrow weight is 465 grains. Yep. And uh, I'm I'm shooting a 350 spine arrow, mm -hmm. um, 9.6 grains. Um I think I've got some a mixture of Cayugas and black stumps there that I'm going to use up this year. Yep. Um, and and they've always done the job up there. Yeah. The new um, the new Cayugas or the the originals? No, the originals. Yep. Yep. Um, I haven't even had one of the new ones in my hand. Um, yeah, I, I'm still scratching my head on how to get them razor how to how to approach those to get them razor sharp. Yeah, it's, and it's good you talk. Obviously, the Cayuga Boys are sponsor of the podcast, and um, you know it's it's a topic that comes up a bit. But I must say, they're a lot easier than what people think. Um, yep, yep. You know, and there is there's some videos there, and with Brad, you know, Brad is one that had a lot to do with that. I've seen some stuff that he used to make himself. You know, up in the cap yep, before yep. they come out, before the pilot cuts yep. come out, and that's where the concepts come from. Yep, and I. I think the concept of that is very, very yeah, good. It is, it but, is for everyone out yeah. there. It's a, they're a lot easier than what they look at. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and I'm happy if anybody knows, write to me and um, you know we'll we'll make sure we get some yeah. more content out there about it. But they're worth trying. They fly like darts. Yeah. Yeah. No. Until I've actually got one in my hand, we may. I'm taking Doug Doug from Arrowhead up up with me this year. Yeah. And um, we may go over to Strathburn one day and say good day to the boys. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. As, as, as I say, I um, haven't had one of those heads in my hand to have a look at it as yet. Right. Uh, but, of course, it'll be sharp. sharp um, you'll be able to sharpen it, but it's yep. just you'll have to have the right approach to sharpen it. Yep, yep. Um, I've seen guys put them on grinders and that, and they totally distort the broadhead. Yeah, nah. Well, I, do, I, I use a straight flat file. I just use a flat yep. file, and I don't, I don't keep the rounded sort of the the, the pilot, I suppose, the wing cut. I don't sort yep. of keep that little rounded. I actually kind of only square it off. So I just, yep. I use it. I kind of use it as two edges, and then just yep. a very light side because obviously we're talking single bevel. So if yep. anyone hasn't checked them out, jump on a Cougar website, check them out. They're uh, but they, yeah, just a single flat file. Some of the guys are using a half round, keeping that little. Um, anyone that wants to hit up Robbie Austin, I can't remember his Instagram handle, but you know Robbie very well. Yep. Um, yes. Robbie's man, he gets some razor, so he loves yep. him. Yep, yep. No, um, no, very interesting head, and uh, I wish the guys a lot of success with them. Um, yeah, no, and, and I mean, they've got awesome testing grounds up there, so, yeah. yeah. yeah they're good. I mean, and it's, really, it's really good just to see a couple of Aussie companies, including yourself with the Arrows, and, and you know, yep. just sort of trying to jump in there and have a bit of a crack and putting, you said it really well, we've got great testing grounds out here, and, and, and yes. I'm just, you know, I'm working with some guys at the moment from the States that, you know, they're really sort of starting to go, what are you guys up to about 
you know, down there sort of thing. And yeah. we've sent some heads over, uh, just a couple yeah. of dozens, you know, from various, yeah. from, from yeah. both, you know, the, the Cayuga boys and, and, and Oscuts as well. I left some over there, um, yeah. you know, just to give them an idea of what the guys are doing back here and, and trying to show them what, um, I, what they're doing. I've actually sent, sent some arrows over to a couple of bow hunters in Utah and yeah. they go, they're wrapped with them, eh? Yeah. They go, these are so durable. Yeah. And and it's, you're right, like the few of us Australian guys that are bringing out a product, especially if it's a good product, mm-hmm. um, you'd like to think that our bow hunting fraternity will support it. Yeah. You know, like like with my arrows, if you go on my media page on Native Hunting Gear, there's everything being shot in there from Bantang to Buffalo to Ibex to African game to you yeah. name it. It's yeah. all a species of deer. How can you not have confidence yeah. in that shaft? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly and right. People, people will still want the American name shafts. And you scratch your head, they're paying like maybe a eighty or ninety dollars more a dozen, and you go, well, why? <laughs> no, uh, you, you, you know, and like I've got some really good bow hunters using my gear, and um, you just don't understand it. It's just like it's like they've got that lack of security. It's got to be, it's got to be this or it's got to be that from America. Mm. You know, and a lot of people go, oh, yeah, arrows are made in Asia. They would be very, very surprised how many well-known shafts from America are made in Asia. Mm. Yeah. Very surprised. Major brands made in Asia. Mm. Big time. It's just not, it's not viable, the same as in Australia, it's not viable to make shafts in australia it, it would cost too much money well i think a lot, of, a lot a lot of it too and i love fiddling and i love you know talking to guys like yourself and you know everybody else in amongst the thing and just sort of getting a bit of an idea what you use and i love sort of trying different stuff and probably yep. i don't know why i do it but it just i guess it keeps me interested in it but i find components is what frustrates the bejesus out of me like the arrow shafts the arrow shaft and generally if you can get the straightness right um, they're relatively consistent and a lot of the arrows across the board will, will do the job for you. Um, yes. But the components seem to be the, you know, I know we, you know, we, we just come back from over the States and, you know, obviously get a lot of time to talk rubbish on the mountain and, you know, just talking yep. about different designs and different ideas and what it should be like and what, it, you know, what some yeah. company missed out on, you know, and I can't understand why someone can't get it right. Look, look you're right. Um, like the, the trouble with, um, that I personally have is I'm running my whole business with the manufacturer on emails. Yeah. <laughs> they don't speak English. Oh, it must be so now, frustrating. Now, and a few of my good close friends know very well, and a couple of the guys I sponsor know very well, I've had whole shipments come here. Yeah. And... They've just been no good. Yeah. Yeah. It's just but part it's part and parcel of that game, I suppose. It's just yeah. to what you want to say. You're trying it you're trying to contact to them. Like I got one load of my inserts of stainless steel. 
I got one lot of inserts and my inside diameter is uh, 204, the same as a GT Kinetic. Yeah. And my inserts, yeah, I had to put them in with a hammer, though, that tight. <sighs> so I got back to the manufacturer. I said, when you get the people that manufacture the inserts, tell them I want them a fraction, a fraction <laughs> less diameter. So uh, that they slide in there. And then they come and you put one in, you can shake the shaft. <laughs> I knew you were going to say and, that. It just, and like, oh. guys pulling them out left, right, and centre because, like, as soon as you shoot them into a butt and pull pull them out, the, yeah. the insert comes out. Yeah, it's too much gap, mate. Um, and I'm replacing inserts left, right, and centre, which wasn't a problem, but... It's just frustrating. <laughs> just the communication is... If people knew or if people got it in their heads, and I know a few young guys have, guys that have, haven't been in the sport that long, they go, we're going to bring out our own arrow shaft. Yeah. They're opening up a whole tin of worms. Eh? <laughs> uh, a lot of sleepless um, nights and a lot of lost money, if you ask me. But because because I've always worked in fiberglass and that side of things, and later mm. years we use quite a bit of carbon fiber now. Yeah, so you got a little I, bit of a concept around it. I've got an idea of carbon fiber and mm. the way that shafts are built. So I get my shafts built to my specifications. Mm. And when you saturate the carbon with epoxy, the epoxy isn't strong. So once you saturate the carbon, you want that epoxy squeezed out as much as possible. Okay. So you're just retaining the carbon strength. Yeah, got you. And when you've got too much epoxy in a carbon shaft, they become brittle. Right. And a lot of guys are getting shafts and they're basically that that factory stock standard shaft. Yeah. And they're, they're rubbish, eh? Yeah. Do you remember the old carbon you know, tax? Yes. Yep. <laughs> Man, yep. Didn't they? I used to love splintering. They oh, were good yeah. arrow. They were good yep. arrow. But they, so what? that was something different because that carbon just ran straight, didn't it? It wasn't weaved. It wasn't across. Yes. Yes. Well, well, the, you, you get a wrap, you get a wrap and then a straight weave. Yeah. And um, one's, one's laid over the other. But there's a few tricks coming out of Asia these days and what they do, that underlayer is fiberglass. Oh, right. You've got to be very careful of this because, again, the fiberglass... It's going to do the same as epoxy. It will only bend so far before it snaps. Uh, Whereas gotcha. you, get a, you get a carbon fishing rod and you get that tip, you can nearly tight knots. Yeah. If that was fiberglass, you wouldn't get it half bent and it snap in half. Yeah, or arrow yeah. shafts the same. Yeah, especially when you put a and bit it, of it, like if it yeah. touches something, it explodes yeah. pretty much. And, and, if, and an easy way to tell it is if you, you see a broken shaft, um, you'll actually see the glistening of the fiberglass. Okay. Yeah, um, there's a, an American shaft. It's, it's oh, without naming names, there's one shaft that that company produces is made in Asia and it's mm. the cheapest shaft on their line. Yep. And it is a mixture of carbon and fibreglass. There you go. Yeah, because it's cheap to produce, yeah. so they sell it cheap. It's yeah. the base 
base model arrow from that company. Yes, and they sell oodles of them because yeah. people, they're a good shaft and everything else, but what they're buying is a mixture of carbon and fiberglass. Okay, there you go. So, yeah, there's a lot in a, in a carbon arrow than, yeah, <laughs> just buying, buying a blanket, putting your name on it. Mm. Uh, it took me six months of research. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, before I um, settled on what I currently have. Mm-hmm. They're very, very good shafts. Um, yeah, as I say, like everything that we've got in this country has been taken with them. Mm. as well as overseas game and big game too, not just, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know how any more you can test a shaft than the results, you know. Definitely. Um, but, yeah, so, no, it's um, my retirement packages. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you retire, what's, you know, I know we, we spoke the other night and um, just a bit of a, you know, bit of an idea of what we're going to talk about tonight, but, you know, yep. Obviously, overseas is on the cards for you. you. You're telling me you you want to get over there and, and chase an elk, and can't ask see why because you're you're red deer addicts. So you know they're very very similar. Um, you've got some bloody good contacts over there too. I must admit, you know some of the best. Yeah, we but, won't name we won't name my contacts. No, nah, we won't do that. <laughs> but it um, you know it, it's a huge driver, and you know you 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 put a lot on the table. But is it going to yeah. happen soon next year? Year after, yeah. what's going to happen? Next, next September, next September, I'm either going to Utah or Idaho. Yep. Um, I'll be going, um, hopefully, with my friend's directions, I'll be going in when they're bugling, but not too late because mm-hmm. um, if I, I don't want to get the opportunity on bullets all broken up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I want to get... Um, the opportunity on bulls while they're still roaming about a bit, yep. but bugling at the same time. Yeah. Um, hopefully they'll be similar to red deer as such. If you get a roving, um, a roving red stag, he's far easier to to call in. Oh yeah. Than what a a, a stag is with does, and hopefully elk will be similar. Yep, they are. Um, but yeah, look, I'm very excited. It's my dream hunt, and I can probably only do it once. You uh, won't. You'll do it more than once. I'll put money on it. Yeah, I don't know. I You'll don't be know. Right. You'll Actually, be right. No. Don't do yourself uh, in yet. Um, You'll be right. <laughs> but I'm just going to do an over-the-counter tag. Yeah. And backpack in. Um, of course, the only thing I'm concerned about, if I am fortunate enough to shoot one, is getting it out. Um, because you've got to, as you know, you've got to take the whole animal out. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about this the other night. For anybody that doesn't know, yeah. I've said this before, but, you know, there, there's a minimum requirement of what you've got to take out of the out of the mountains, and it really does change the way you try and plan your hunt because there's, mate, you can get back 10 or 12 mile, and, and I'll guarantee you, you'll, you'll be in elk, but if you're by yourself solo and you've got to try and get that bugger out, uh, she's a whole other ball game. Yeah, so so my discussion over there will be if if there's um, phone service where I'm going to be hunting um, is if I'm shoot if I'm able to shoot one maybe there's uh, a couple of boys I can contact because obviously I'm not going to bring back all the meat off an elk to Australia so I don't want the meat but of course you've got to take it out and the boys over there love eating elk yep. so. 
hopefully I can be in a situation where if I shoot one, I can get get a couple of guys to help me get it out. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, old, the, old, the old inreach, mate. Don't need phone service anymore. Old Garmin inreach. Hi. The old Garmin inreach. Don't need yeah, phone service well, anymore. That's something I've got to find out. My Garmin, my Garmin uh, GPS, will it work over there? Yep, yep. So GPS stuff works, and they've got the new new inReach out, which has actually got a messenger on it, so you can actually use it like a phone. Um, you can actually hook it to your phone, so you can actually type the message through your phone. Just use your mobile as as normal, but it's actually Bluetooth to the to the, the okay. Garmin device. We were, we were using it in Alaska, and I was texting my wife in Australia. It was pretty cool. Because I, I was wondering, because my GPS is working in this zone of, a, of the world sort of thing, if I go over there, do I have to? Uh, you know, get another GPS basically that's no, going to work not, in that zone. Not at all. No, all you want to do is just update your, or you won't even have to update, but just download the maps over there so you've got the, the right topo because you'll, yeah. you'll have an Australian topo map in your in your Garmin, in your yeah. GPS, and then when you get up, you just order or you can, if it's a, uh, obviously a newer one, you can download it online. So, uh, but other than yeah. that, like I use my phone, um, I use their mapping, I use my mapping from here. Um, like I can jump on right now and, and um, you know, look at look at maps, and it'll work fine. So, yeah. no, you don't have to buy anything uh, else. Yeah, no. Hopefully, I can um, get put into like a a big valley system where I can work either sides of the valley and oh. basically simply drop into the floor of the valley to get myself back out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, that it's, sort of a situation. It's big country, mate. You've got good contacts. You, they'll put you in the right direction, yeah. and um, they're all the country's so different. You know, um, Otto's yeah. obviously got you know some great opportunities being over the counter. Um, you yeah. do look. I've got to be honest. You know, you're going to have the competitiveness of other hunters. That that's one thing you've got to take into consideration um, with any over the counter yeah. unit. You know, you won't be there on your own, and you'll probably chase someone else's bugles from a, a Primos. But yeah, it, well, it's was, all it's was, all part and parcel. Yeah, I was told that a lot of the boys are in the bush on the weekends. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, you got your serious so, guys that take yeah. the time off, but you know the poor guys over there. They, you know, if they work the normal nine to five, like they only get two weeks off yeah. a year, and if they got families, yeah. you, you're very unlikely that they're going to spend a couple yeah. of weeks in the in the hills, like unlike yeah. we do here. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I want to spend two weeks there. I'm not going sightseeing. I'm going hunting, and oh. um, if I've got to go in for five days and come out for a couple of days just to that's, refurnish yeah, everything and good. then go back in again, eh? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just the only thing I probably am a little bit wary about is bears. Yeah, I look, um, definitely, definitely take that in consideration. I mean that they're they're spreading too. You know, some of the areas that I've even yeah, hunted, they're, uh, they're sort of getting into. But yeah, it's yeah. something that you need to think. I'm not too like I've been around black bears and that. They don't worry me. But that grizzly country, yeah, it yeah. certainly it certainly changes the atmosphere of the hunt. So um, and being a non-resident, you can't carry a firearm. No, you can. Yeah, you're right. You can. Yep. How? Yeah, you can pack one. You can pack a, a pistol on your hip. Okay. Yeah, I was good. under the assumption because you're a non-resident, you couldn't carry a firearm. No, you're good. So on the on your permit, like I've had New Mexico on the permit, it's like you know legal carry carry firearm. Yes. So no, you're fine. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's fine. And and I would, you know, even black bears that you know, if you are by yourself. Yeah. yeah, by all means, you know, it's well, just, you just yeah. never know. I was nearly going to try and surface a little aerosol air horn 
you know, and they, they're bloody loud, those things. But I thought I'll scare all the elk out yeah, of the valley. Yeah, Bit of caps. <laughs> the old bear spray, mate. They, everyone carries a bear spray in that country. I mean, I haven't, and I'm first to put my hand up, I haven't hunted grizzly country. So, yeah. um, you know, I, there's plenty of guys that I know that do. And a lot of them don't, they're not worried. But it, it, it certainly is becoming certain talk. Um, yeah, 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 I have to watch some of the devils lately. You'd nearly have to smell their breath before you squeezed one of those bear sprays, wouldn't you? Well, uh, you hear different things come back. They, they say, well, they, they, you can shoot it a fair way, but you still want to be able to hit something with it. But they reckon the, the bear spray can be more better than the, the pistol because once you've missed with the pistol, you're up shit creek. So um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want either of them coming at me. I don't have to use either. So. <laughs> but no, look, I'm I'm very excited about, it and I'll try and get a tag to if I walk into a, a mule deer stag in a stalk situation too. Yeah, that's um, where Idaho, Idaho's going to be your friend for that because you get both over the counter. So. Yeah, yeah, and Definitely. um, so and the the tag in um, Idaho, I think, is like six hundred bucks or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm pretty excited, eh? Yeah. Um, a lot, a lot of good public land in Idaho. Oh yeah. And um, and and yeah, as one of my friends said, one saying come to Utah, one saying come to Idaho. But the one in Idaho is saying, well, there's not as much public land in in Utah, and there's a lot more hunters. Yeah. And he said, you're far better off coming into Idaho, but then northern Idaho's got grizzlies in it. So, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a concern. Yeah, yeah, it, it is hard. I mean, a lot of the better country of Utah is draw only and, and pretty hard draw units as well, but there is definitely general yeah. general elk hunts in Utah as well. I don't know a lot about them, but, um, you know, the draw stuff I do. But, um, you know, Idaho's definitely got some options there, so. They'll find yeah. you. They'll find you a bull to shoot. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping. Um, I'm hoping I might get one of the boys to call for me. Eh? That'd be good. That'd be real handy. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, yeah, I'm going to sort of endeavour to buy a couple of reeds and um, whatever, and um, go where nobody can hear me here and and try and learn to sort of use them. You know, in your car driving yeah. to work. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, somewhere, yeah. somewhere where I'm not going to embarrass myself. Uh, I get, uh, I get the dogs howling at home when I go. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get going. But oh, I'm very, fun. very excited, very excited to sort of the thought of going over there. I eh? and um, yeah, so that's going to be my go-to thing next year, if at all possible. And 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 there'll be hopefully a trip up the end, Northern Territory next year. Um, do a do a hunt with the boys. I sponsor a couple of well-known boys up there that shoot a lot of good game, and awesome. um, they, they're keen to get me up there for a hunt. So Unreal. I'll do that as well and fit in my red deer and rooster and all the rest of it. <laughs> you sound a bit uh, like yeah. I'm, just, I'm just trying to fit it all in. I'm 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 actually already starting to try and work out my September next year now. So got a couple of yeah. opportunities on the table, and um, yeah. yeah, just trying to somehow make it all work but anyway we'll see what happens so yeah yeah but um no it's a great life and i mean we could be doing a lot worse things to our bodies hey oh definitely definitely um there's there's not many serious bow hunters that are walking around with beer bellies and stuff like that hey? like <laughs> most of most most of your serious bow hunters are keep themselves pretty fit hey 
and the ones that do surprise the shit out of you. So <laughs> like walk yeah, mountains well, better than you can. But, uh, yeah. That's for sure. I don't know. When, when I've guided people hunting red deer and um, they're they're not in very – you look at them and they go, you think to yourself, they're never going to get up the top of the ridge. <laughs> and you know, you'll start walking away and – you, you'll start increasing that gap and you'll sort of be halfway up the ridge and you turn around and they got their tree wrapped around a tree, hanging on the tree, puffing and huffing. And, <laughs> you know, and I sit down and have a cigarette and I go, no, smoking, you know, and they wonder why they can't walk the hill, you know. Yeah, it's definitely not going to help, but that's for sure. Uh, quite funny, eh? <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Well, mate, but, uh, thank you so much for joining it. We've already, uh, shit. We have been going for a while. But, uh, mate, I can't thank you enough. As I said when we started, mate, it's definitely a comfort zone. I know you were sort of something very, very different for you, but, you know, your stories and, mate, we didn't probably touch half of or a quarter of what you've got up to, you know, especially yeah, chasing red deer and that, mate. But I really appreciate you spreading it, you know, sending the stories out and, you know, letting the people know a little bit about yourself. And what's yep. the best way for people to get a hold of you if they're, Interested in, in checking out your arrows and, and stuff like that, mate. Where, where can we find you? Um, my website is nativehuntinggear.com. Native hunting gear is all one word, nativehuntinggear.com. And that takes you to my website. Um, I Because everyone's going up north at the moment, I'm sold out of 300s and 250 spine arrows, but I have another shipment coming within the next two weeks. Cool. But, um, yeah. Um, everyone can have a look at that. And by all means, please check out our media page. Um, you'll be quite amazed at the quality of game that's on that media page. I think we've got like about 180 photos on that slideshow at the moment. Beautiful. And it's all quality game. And uh, you'll be quite impressed, I'm sure. Well, mate, thanks again. Yeah. I, I, uh, yep. I, I can't thank you enough for jumping on, mate. And um, all the best up north. I... Um, I hope you smack a few decent balls, mate, and uh, there's no doubt we'll talk more in regards to, to your elk hunt coming up, mate, and if I can help you in any way with, with tags and that, mate, let me know. Okay, buddy. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on, eh? No worries, Daryl. Absolute pleasure. Okay, mate. Thank you. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was proudly brought to you by Hoyt Bowhunting. I recently had the pleasure of taking a tour of the Hoyt factory in Salt Lake City in Utah. It's no wonder why so many bow hunters around the world put their trust in a Hoyt. Seeing the process, start to finish, under one roof, going through over 50 inspection stations throughout the build process, there is no doubt they are the most reliable and suitable bow on the market. Get serious, get Hoyt. That's all for me this week. Good luck in the hills and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.